This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Great song. Uh, you know, Jason, we followed Amazon's selection of a second headquarters like a reality show. And in keeping with that, we got a surprise ending. In the face of criticism, Amazon's scrapping plans to build HQ2 in New York. Tom Giles knows that uh, better than most. He's our Bloomberg Technology Executive Editor, and he joins us from our West Coast Bureau. Hey, Tom, I was listening to uh, your chat with Emily Chang on the TV side. Yeah, so hey, I- great, chase, great choice of uh, music to <laughs> kick this off. It's all Paul Brennan. I mean, I do feel like it's been a reality show from the countdown, from the finalists and all that stuff. So when uh, the rubber meets the road, what ultimately made Amazon say, we're not going to do it? They recognized finally and arguably too late that the political there was too much political opposition there. And they they recognized, look, even if we press ahead with this, we're going to continually face this drumbeat of of voices, public voices that are taking issue with aspects of this deal, the tax breaks. Uh, the infrastructure impact. The su- you guys know what the subways are like better than anybody. Um, the real estate impact, house prices. You were going to just have a continual drumbeat. Plus, I think I think the real turning point came with uh, with the nomination of GNRS to the board that has veto power over the deal. Uh, and and so. This is a real miscalculation on Amazon's part, as far as we can tell. They really failed to pick up on the changing political winds that that really have where there's a growing number of people who are saying, look, tech is too big, too powerful. It's run by billionaires and they're taking advantage of the little guy. So, Tom, let's talk about that a, a bit. That specific issue, because you're out there in the belly of the beast. This is not an entirely new phenomenon, certainly in San Francisco, where you had people, you know, again, keep me honest here, throwing rocks and eggs and whatnot at Google buses in San Francisco. Uh, This is a story that seems to be reaching a bit of a fever pitch. And as you allude to sort of hitting the political zeitgeist of the moment, you had AOC tweeting, you know, kind of victory for the people. Right. Uh, broaden this out for us a little bit. Tech seems to be having sort of a tough moment here. Over the last year and beyond, you've seen a real reassessment of uh, whether big tech has become too big and too powerful. And what is the role, what is the role that tech is playing in our lives? We We learned about the ways that social media was used to spread misinformation during the campaigns we hear about you know we there's questions about whether or not amazon is paying its fair share of taxes some of this has been fueled by donald trump now a lot of it doesn't have have much merit but the questions linger is tech bad for america and are they doing right by us what are they doing with our data what are they doing with you know how invasive is alexa you know this device that's in our homes these questions are persisting, and there's growing concern that that's going to turn into regulation. And here was an instance where 
on its face, you look at it and you think, wait, this is a creation of jobs. This is going to be tax revenue for this, uh, you know, property tax, income tax, uh, corporate tax for the city of New York. What's not to love about that? As I was talking to, to, to Emily Chang earlier, this would have taken years to realize. The benefits would, would have taken years to realize. Year one, you were only going to see 700 jobs. So 2020 comes around. I'm a politician, and people are holding me accountable for letting Amazon into New York City. They're going to say, wait, I thought there was 25,000 jobs. Right. I see 700 so far. I'm not seeing the big impact. I'm only seeing the headlines and the and the potential impact on the infrastructure. So there's a lot of genuine concern there. All right, couple quick questions. If the company's yes. name had not been Amazon, do you think we'd be having this problem? It doesn't help that the company is run by the world's richest person. It doesn't help that this is a company that touched a trillion dollars in market capitalization. It doesn't help that there's a constant there's a steady stream of tweets from Donald Trump blasting uh, Amazon Washington Post, as he likes to put it, um, you know, blasting Jeff Bezos. Those things don't help the political uh, the political wins facing them in New York. All right. And if Jeff Bezos didn't have all those personal problems going on again, would we would this have happened in terms of Amazon pulling out? Like, is, is it just a case of Bezos's play getting a little bit too full here, Tom? Well, it's a great question. I do think that there was a lot of outsourcing that happened at the top management of Amazon when it came to negotiating this deal. Where were they when they should have been including local political uh, local officials when they should have been wooing uh, the unions when they were communicating the merits of the deal? You didn't see Jeff Bezos up there. No. You saw deputies. You saw people who were outside the top brass selling the deal. They outsourced it and it really has bit them in the rear. Do you think ultimately New York is going to come to regret this? Because I, I kind of, part of me kind of, I'm trying to get my head around it and say, well, wait a minute. I mean, you want your economy to become more and more diverse. You want to attract businesses to your city. I do think if you're a business and you're thinking about setting up shop in New York City in a big dramatic way, looking for tax breaks, I think you have to rethink that at this point. Is the political opposition going to become too nettlesome for me? I think if you're a business, you have to be asking that question right now. And I think there's going to be a reassessment of the big, the lavish tax breaks that these cities right. like to roll out for companies. Right. Well, you do wonder whether this has a bit of a chilling effect outside of New York City, too, that you know, companies may not necessarily get the deals that they expected they might, or you may have non-New York City cities. We've already seen some of them starting to tweet like, come on, we'll uh, we'll have you in our backyard. Tom Giles, uh, always great to catch up with you, executive editor for Global Tech out in San Francisco. I we know it's a busy afternoon. I kind of like to think that maybe people are reading all the stories that we at the magazine are doing and elsewhere about whether or not when a company comes in, gets lots of tax breaks, and what it really, really, really does to a local economy. So Really, I really. Yeah, really, really. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. All right, so Carol, when it, feel, it feels like when we're not talking about video games, we're talking about toys. It's just who we are. Uh, <laughs> we like it. Big business. Uh, toys and especially big business. And really, we're 
fascinating. It was a fascinating sector in 2018, especially because the demise of Toys R Us and what happened. And we talked a couple weeks ago about the earnings, but let's spin it forward, especially as it relates to Amazon, Walmart, uh, and Target. Matt Townsend, among many responsibilities, he knows the toy business backwards and forwards. He joins us on the phone in New York City. Great piece today, Matty T. So what does 2019 look like for these guys? Uh, the cautiously optimistic uh, is one way to put it. Um, you mentioned Toys R Us. They was obviously liquidated in the U.S. last year. And, you know, a lot of uh, the big toy makers, actually even small and mid-sized ones, too, really thought Amazon, Target, and Walmart would pick up a lot of that slack. And while they did pick up some of it, it wasn't as much as they thought. And actually, the industry uh, fell 6% in the fourth quarter in the U.S. and globally was down for the year as well, which was the first decline, I think, since the recession. So there is some, you know, fingernail biting at this point. But sort of the bright points that, you know, I get into this story is that they expect Amazon to make a big push into toys and Walmart and Target as well. And then sort of a bright spot for the small guys that they saw a lot of growth with with what's left of the independent toy stores, uh, just little mom and pops. And I profile a couple of them in the store that are actually expanding. One guy moved into a much bigger space. He's thinking about opening more stores. So you could see some demand coming from them, too. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this story. Growing up, we had the little pink toy store in Closter, New Jersey, and that's where we would go. And it was this jam-packed little place, and it was just a blast for us as kids to go to. And I was thinking about, Matt, your story, like bookstores, right? We had little bookstores, and then all of a sudden they were yeah. squeezed out because of Barnes & Noble, Borders, B. Dalton, so many different uh, you know, bigger players that squeezed out the, the small guys. B. Dalton, guys. that's a throwback. Thank you, David <laughs> Wilson, because we were talking about this in the newsroom. And then you saw yeah. those guys get hurt by Amazon. And I have seen, certainly in my town and other towns, nearby um the growth of smaller local bookstores again they're coming back and i feel like that's happening with toy stores yeah that's that's a good point carol that's one thing that uh people brought up is that you know the wave of sort of store closings for the small guys obviously was you know a big story with walmart and target getting into toys and then obviously toys r us but yeah we are seeing toy stores come back um you know there's actually a trade group for independent toy toy stores and they said you know most of our members saw big gains um, during the fourth quarter, especially if they were near a Toys R Us that closed. And, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, what these smaller toy stores are doing, and a lot of them, this is what they've always always done, but they, they have events and they do cool things in the store and they actually let the kids play with the toys in the store, which is, you know, ironic because that's something that a lot of critics of Toys R Us said. It's like, where are the experiences? Where's the fun? Why don't you have things out for more kids to play with, do events, do face painting, have you know, all kind of have birthday parties in the store. And that these are the kind of things that these smaller stores are doing and have been doing, and, and, and the customers are really reacting to them. So, Matt, while we have you, I want to throw you a bit of a curveball because we yeah. didn't get a chance to talk to you earlier in the week about the Levi Strauss IPO. And you had a great story yeah. uh, with Kim Basine about this, I believe, yesterday. This is kind of a, a big deal for denim, right? Yeah, it is. And, and it, it's it's kind of a interesting time to pursue an IPO, excuse me, the, uh, you know, denim has been hurt by this athleisure trend of people wearing, you know, basically sort of nice sweatpants <laughs> more often. Yoga pants not. are so much more comfortable on the plane than a pair yeah, of Yeah, yoga pants, sorry, sweatpants, I date myself there. Yoga <laughs> pants is obviously a big factor there too, but... Um, he so used to wear his, his sweatpants mo- to be Dalton. Sweat. Go on. Right. Exactly. Go on, Matt. 
so so it is an interesting moment, but we have seen some the denim sales come back um, after several years of declines. There was growth last year in the U.S., and there are opportunities overseas. So, you know, the big idea for for Levi is get this IPO money and expand more overseas. They made a very big point in their S1 about, you know, our sales in China are 3% of our revenue, but it's about 20% of the market. So, you know, it could potentially be a more globalization of of denim in the 501 gene, even though, you know, obviously American jeans are worn all over the country, all over the world already. But yes, it is a big moment and a little bit of a sort of test to see if denim can actually come back strong. Yeah, it is fascinating to think about that. And Matt, you and I have talked over the years, you and I, Lindsay Rupp, and others have talked about, yeah. you know, kind of the, the bespoke gene and, you know, all the boutique mm-hmm. uh, gene makers. Right. Uh, anyway. You go to anthropology and there's yeah. like, you know, 10, 15 different types Seven of Seven for all genes. mankind. Come on. <laughs> High end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Matt, he's trying to be cool. So I know. Just, 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 just give it to so him, okay? Hard. I'm just trying to get over the B. Dalton moment. Uh, Matt he's Townsend, wearing sweatpants. Global <laughs> business reporter for Bloomberg. I am not You're wearing, not wearing sweatpants. sweatpants. Uh, joining us on the phone from New York City. Always you know, good to catch up with you. I was thinking about the Levi's thing. Uh, especially, you've got a generation who cares about authenticity, you know, the history of brands. And I do wonder if they can come back. He's so upset that I said he's wearing sweatpants. I oh my gosh, you guys so- should see <laughs> his face right now you know oh. what it is is that uh if, if i say to my sons are you wearing sweatpants They're like uh these are joggers <laughs> is that what they call them yeah you I know, didn't know that. kids today all right well we were talking a few minutes ago about the toy business but retail and consumer overall mm-hmm. is in such a fascinating uh, space right now. And I have to say, I said this uh, right before we came on air. Our next guest was actually recommended to me by an investment banker I really uh, trust and, and know well, who said, this guy is the smartest and best when it comes uh, to retail and consumer investing. That's Ryan Cotton. He's managing director at Bain Capital. No pressure here, Ryan. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's <laughs> listening. Uh, based up in Boston, but here with us in our New York studio today. Ryan, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you've worked on some deals uh, and with some brands that people know well, certainly our listeners do, Canada Goose, Tom's, Blue Nile. Uh, what sort of connects all that in the Bain universe and in, from your investing thesis? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the worldviews we hold at Bain Capital is that uh, fundamentally barriers to entry in the consumer world are being destroyed today, that uh, it's super easy to launch a product. It's super easy to reach a customer through social media. It's super easy to serve that customer through Amazon and other channels. And so the, the, the what it means to be a great business is shifting really fundamentally to be about how you serve a customer well in a differentiated experience, with a different function, with a, a different service level. And all of those brands you just mentioned, Tom's is a model that's fundamentally different than any other business in the world. Canada Goose is the warmest coat in the world. Uh, Blue Nile is the best way to buy a diamond in the world. And so we're trying to find these value propositions that are eternally resonant because they're cheaper, faster, better, uh, and cut through all the disruption and noise that exists around them. But, you know, and I do wonder about once you make rent, I get it, why you make that initial acquisition, but you'd constantly have new brands coming out, you know, as challengers to all of that. So how do you kind of keep it fresh, keep them still kind of the best, the biggest, the whatever? Yeah, it is the biggest challenge today is that imitation is so ubiquitous. There's 11 guys duking it out for the mattress world right now. Um, The the difference is you have to deliver a product that the customer perceives value and difference in. If it's just a gimmick, if it's just a route to market that nobody's figured out before, everyone's going to figure it out and come into your space and replicate you. And so it has to be steeped in some genuine form of differentiation. Take Canada Goose. It is the warmest coat in the 
world. And customers tell us that. We don't tell them that. There's lots of people who think they make warm coats, and yet the market votes that we're the warmest. That can't be replicated. We have such an often <laughs> quest, a conversation about Canada Goose. It's everywhere. Coats in this newsroom. I'm serious. Like when anybody's saying, oh, i got to buy a coat. Well, you got to get a Canada Goose. Right. It's just fascinating how much it comes off. Well, and you've, you've mentioned the term value a couple times, yeah. and value comes in, in, in different – Different iterations in some ways because you tell someone to go buy a Canada Goose coat, they Google it and they're like, wait, what? Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, I'm going to spend what on yeah, a coat? Exactly. I can go to Burlington Coat Factory and get something that looks a lot like this and maybe feels a lot like this. And still for, be cold. So, and so, well, there you go. <laughs> right, or have Sp- to spoken like, year. spoken exactly. like someone who worked, for, worked with Canada Goose. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it is interesting to think about these brands that we're talking about. You know, Tom's is another. It's not sure. the cheapest shoe out there. Where are we in terms of people's willingness to essentially pay up for yeah. quality. Well, the question is, what do you value? And yeah. I think what the market did is treat us all sort of like a, a, a uniform customer segment forever, that we had to buy Tide detergent because we all wanted to clean our clothes the same way. Or it's what we grew up with. And it's what we grew up with. But today, where there's no barriers to entry, we can pick off customer segments and serve them better. So if you like the environment, we can create a detergent that is environmentally friendly that you can pay up for. If you want the cleanest clothes in the world, we'll create a better detergent that you can pay up for. And there are segments who value that and are mm. willing to do that. So what we're not trying to do is make every Everybody happy. That's fundamentally impossible. What we're trying to do is find a really big pool of unmet consumer need and consumer demand and go serve that pool better. So today I'm in New York for Virgin Voyages, which we're going on sale today. That's a classic example of looking at in an industry, cruising, that's pretty traditional, pretty saturated. Yeah, I was going to say pretty crowded. Yeah, crowded, a lot of brands, but also uh, a lot growing. of products. Growing well, uh, but has a huge pool of customers who say the current product just isn't getting the job done for me. It's, it's nice in theory, but but I don't actually like it. And we think we can meet them with a better experience that they're willing to pay up for. You know, it's interesting. I've spent some time with uh, the head of Carnival Corporation, too. And they've realized in terms of tapping into a younger consumer, you know, millennials, sometimes they want to, you know, go on a go on a trip. But then they also want to be able to give back, you know, when they hit a destination or something. Yeah. You've got to approach it differently. For sure. So we're trying to deliver different experiences in port that will let you connect with the community, that will let you have sustainability and environmental uh, ethic to what you're doing. We're also rethinking the onboard experience. Everybody leads with hardware in cruising. It's a new ship with new gimmicks. Mm. We're trying to lead with software. So instead of serving you a set dining time and a knockoff Broadway show, we're going to treat you like you're out for a night in the West Village. We're going to have restaurant choices. We're going to have entertainment choices. And you can live a millennial lifestyle, right. no matter what your age is, uh, because the programming is fundamentally different. And that's the value notion we're talking about. I am curious, though, about a consumer when you said about value proposition, because you're right. Like, I grew up in a house where my mom's like, you know, invest in something, right? Sure. You'll have it forever. At the same time, you've had fast, fast. Passion, yes. like really take off at this point. So sometimes your consumer wants a bargain. Sometimes they want to know that the carbon footprint by buying that jacket or that coat or what have you yes. is not going to be a big deal. So like, how do you balance that, especially when you're looking to make investments? For sure. It's a huge theme that we're going intentionally high-low in our consumption right now. Yeah. And it's really raising that question of consumer value. And so what we try really hard to do before we make a move is make sure that the value proposition here is something the customer actually sees difference in. When you push somebody on their knit shirt, whether it's an $80 shirt or a $40 shirt, you can't tell and you don't really care. And so that's a race to the bottom. When it's your winter parka, you can tell if it's making you cold or warm. Right. You can tell if it works. And that's functional benefit the consumer is willing to pay up for. And so we're trying to pick those spaces where those valued benefits still exist and avoid those places that are going to be commoditized. So help us understand the, the proverbial and, and increasingly complicated sort of channel wars and especially where people
people want to buy things. And, you know, we've talked a lot on this show and in Bloomberg Business Week about this balance between online, offline. You know, you think about a brand like Harry's, for instance, think about a Mack Weldon and others sort of digitally native, uh, as it were, and many of them then venturing out into more brick and mortar, mm-hmm. at least from a partnership still perspective. still buy a lot of things sure. at stores. Sure. So when you're in the boardrooms of some of these companies or when you're seeing a pitch, how do you sort of navigate that question? For sure. I think it goes back to having an experience the customer's willing to pay for. It, channel wars are a bit of a distraction. At the end of the day, if the customer thinks your product is the best product for them, they're going to buy it. Yeah. They're going to find it, seek it out, and buy it. Uh, the challenge we have today with all these disruptive brands in channel wars is that they're way less focused on building good businesses. They're just trying to exploit an arbitrage or a gimmick as quickly as possible to, to, to get out in front of the next guy. Uh, you know, Canada Goose, you can try and make a parka as warm and ours. You won't. Uh, and so we're going to sell it to you over our own channels. We're going to sell it to you in the retailers we pick. Um, it, you know, the mattress wars, it, there's no distinction between the products. And so it is who can scream louder, who can get there first. They don't make any money, unfortunately, because yeah. they're all racing so hard to acquire the next customer. They're not building an underlyingly great business. We want to buy and build great businesses. Ryan, just got 30 seconds. What's the retail story that we're not all talking enough about? I think that there is going to be a resurgence of traditional retail. I think some of the scale advantages that traditional brick-and-mortar players have are actually valuable. The customer knowledge they have, the procurement knowledge they have, the merchandising knowledge they have. And when they figure it out and get back in the game, I think they're going to be some interesting and formidable people that we had written off. Great stuff. Really you did well. Hey. Yeah, you did great. <laughs> Hard to live up to Jason's intro. Well, you no, know, you lived up to it. Brian Wood over at Imperial Capital. He's the banker that I was mentioning. He will, you know, he's going to be patting himself on the back a little bit for uh, calling you out. It's a uh, fascinating world. Ryan Cotton, uh, managing director for Bain Capital. I should note. For the benefit of Paul Brennan, our producer, he once worked for the Sox. Go Sox! Sox. In awesome. So we're definitely watching the back and forth between uh, U.S. and China trade officials uh, about a new trade agreement between the two countries. Um, And just like the Amazon story, this next one is among the most read on the Bloomberg about how the U.S.-China trade teams, well, said to be kind of far apart when it comes to a few of the issues. Let's bring in Sarah McGregor, U.S. economic policy team leader over at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. A lot going on in Washington. We're watching to see whether or not we get something done on a budget deal. In the meantime, tell me about U.S.-China trade. I thought we were making progress, Sarah. So the Trump administration would want us to believe that progress is being made. We heard from White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow today saying, you know, there's a good vibe to the talks and that, you know, the sides are soldiering on trying to get a deal that he's cautiously optimistic they may get. That being said, um, you know, what we're hearing from from our sources is that really the, the two sides aren't much closer on some of the hard issues like China making these deep structural changes to its economic and trade policies. And so that's the crux of a deal. That's what Donald Trump has promised us, that that, that these hard issues are going to be agreed on, that China is going to be forced in some, into some painful changes. And, um, and so that sort of leaves us wondering then how a deal will be reached. And what about this extension that, that we're hearing about? What are the implications of that? What's the significance of it? Because I have to say, and, and I'm guessing you've heard similar and much more voluminously, everybody looked at this March 1 deadline like, Seriously? Like, we're going to solve all our problems by March 1st? I mean, there was a lot of skepticism about that to begin with. Especially issues that have plagued us for years and years and years, right? 
Absolutely. Yes. As you said, none of these, all of these issues have been discussed by previous administrations and none of them have been able to resolve them. And so to think that um, the Trump administration and Chinese President Xi Jinping's government could could try and find a solution in three months by March 1st seems pretty, pretty outlandish. But, um, you know, what we are hearing from our sources is that the Trump administration is considering extending that deadline, March 1st deadline, by 60 days. Of course, um, if they don't, the tariffs will escalate on $200 billion of Chinese goods to 25% from 10%. Um, You know, even another 60 days, really, um, it's hard to imagine there being an agreement in China, of course, basically agreeing to change its economic model to suit the Trump administration's demands. It's, it's really hard to imagine that that's going to happen. So whether we get 60 more days or not, I think there's still questions raised about um, whether this is just sort of pushing the clock back or, or something, um, you know, a, a productive way to get a deal. Right, because I do wonder, right, these are, as we just said, complicated issues. So even if we have to keep pushing the deadline a little bit here, it just shows at least we're talking, we're figuring them out. And it is going to be, these are, these are tricky issues. Issues and to do them well, as we talked with Kyle Bass earlier this week, that the United States and President Trump in particular is in a very smart negotiating position right now, potentially because the China's got a lot of problems back at home, uh, kind of watching what's going on in its domestic economy. And so this is really an opportunistic moment for the United States. Yeah, and you see, I mean, the the markets move on the trade news. When we reported today that there might be an extension mm-hmm. to the deadline, yeah. you know, that, that sent a jolt through through the stock markets. And it comes on the day, of course, of unexpected um, downward trend for retail sales in December. And so, you know, this sort of looked um, maybe perhaps like a bit of a, a down day for the markets. But, of course, you know, if talks are extended, if it looks like progress is being made, that sort of gives a little bump. And so, um, you know, Trump... Trump does keep his eye on the markets and the economy right now. There's still the tea leaves aren't quite red yet on whether it's um, the you know going to continue to expand or whether it can there can be there's going to be a little bit of a tight spot now. So um, you know the, maybe the Trump administration also wants more time to see what where that goes. And so Sarah, help us understand because you know you oversee a group of folks down there who have to keep an eye on this as well as a lot of other economic trends and data data, as it were, that hasn't been as forthcoming owing to the previous government uh, shutdown. How does this tie in sort of priority-wise economically as we think about the U.S. economy? Sure. I mean, I think right now, um, you know, the duties have impacted some businesses. There's a lot of uncertainty, I think, more than anything, which, you know, is holding back um, investment decisions, whether businesses want to expand or add more employees. If if they're an industry that might be hit by the tariffs or potential retaliation, you know, they're, they're sort of taking a, a second look right now. We had a story out today about a related but separate issue, the auto tariffs. Um, which a report is due by uh, by Sunday from the Commerce Department um, that could lead to tariffs on imported automobiles. And we spoke, you know, with with officials who who say auto developers who say, you know, this this has kind of stopped us from from expanding our plants. And so I think um, the uncertainty from it right now is probably the biggest factor that's playing in. And you know, as time passes, if the tariffs escalate, the tariffs themselves will have a bigger impact on the economy and sort of an outsized impact than they're having now. Hey, Sarah, very quickly, 20 seconds. Is it going to take a meeting between Trump and Xi to really finally get something done, perhaps, or move it along? Absolutely. That's what we've heard from President Donald Trump himself, that no deal will be final until he agrees with it with Xi Jinping. And he sort of 
constantly sort of says how much he values their personal relationship. So I really do think at least for the optics of it, they'll want to have a, uh, a photo op to announce any deal at least. Getting up to speed on U.S.-China trade, thanks to Sarah McGregor. Sa- Sarah, thank you. Sarah McGregor, U.S. Economic Policy Team Leader at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 991 studio in the nation's capital. This story has been among our most read in the past eight hours on the Bloomberg. Carol Master, Jason Kelly, Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Carol Master along with Jason Kelly in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Jim Russell is with us as well. Principal and portfolio manager at Ball & Gainer. $23.7 billion in assets under management. Uh, Jim joining us from Cincinnati. Uh, headlines, a lot of them crossing uh, the Bloomberg at this point, Jim. Just talking about the expectations that indeed we'll get a border deal done in Washington, but at the same time, the president will declare an emergency to get the additional funds that he has asked for and requires to build that wall along the border between the United States and Mexico. How do you view this stuff coming out of Washington and what it means for the investment environment? Yeah. Hi, Carol. Uh, thank you for, for asking. Uh, great question. Certainly topical. Uh, certainly, this has been, I think, on the minds of investors really over the last maybe quarter or so. Uh, certainly, it rattled the markets in the fourth quarter, along with you know tough Fed talk, China trade, government shutdown in the fourth quarter. One by one, I do think that we are knocking these issues out. Uh, I think the Fed is now playing nicely in terms of maybe some expectations regarding actions in 2019. Government shutdown appears to be off the table, as you just mentioned. We'll know more about that maybe in a few minutes. But does uh, the back the, and forth and, you know, yeah. Nancy Pelosi, like her or not, you know, she right. is certainly fighting a tough game here, as is the president. And I do right. wonder what that means and portends for future talks and discussions out of Washington. And just a reminder that Washington, OK, it's getting something done, but this is kind of painful. It is painful. Uh, I would tell you that uh, it I think the president has thrown us a little bit of a curveball, but he did uh, mention all along that he was keeping his options open and totally understand that he clearly did not get what he wanted from the Democrats in in terms of negotiating funds for the wall. And I guess he's going to go this next step because it's our understanding uh, from reading and talking to smart people there in Washington that uh, the GOP had actually encouraged him strongly not to uh, declare the national emergency, but he's going to do this anyway. So we'll have to see, um, you know, how this affects additional uh, issues that pop up in Washington. But it does look like standard operating procedure, which is nothing but a contentious relationship. It's a great point. And as we just heard from our uh, Eric Watson, our congressional reporter, it sounds like the pressure is coming from a very specific, very discreet part of the caucus there. The Freedom Caucus specifically, Mark Meadows, really putting pressure on the president uh, to make this decision. So, Jim, I, I liked how what you said about sort of knocking these things down that are in this wall of worry for investors. Trade's still out there. It feels like that – The discussions with China uh, seem to be one of the the big things still looming out there. How do you read that? 
Yeah, Jason, great question as well. Uh, we don't know any more, more than you know what we read uh, and maybe some of the blow-by-blow on things happening uh, literally this week in Beijing and perhaps you know delaying the the uh, tariffs, which we think is a good and constructive uh, element to the talks and maybe signals that uh, both Washington and Beijing uh, want a deal sooner rather than later. We do think that the markets have discounted and maybe even priced in the positives hmm. of a conclusion of the trade deal. Um, we are totally cognizant that the IP transfer, or either force transfer or IP theft, uh, remains a central issue here. Surveillance and, and fact-checking and making sure that that is uh, being adhered to uh, remains, I think, problematic for the United States. So we'll have to see how those uh, negotiations, uh, you know, maybe conclude. But I, I, I do think that I can see a scenario where we claim victory, uh, Beijing claims victory, and the IP uh, issue specifically uh, gets studied uh, on a longer-term basis and perhaps gets hammered out. I do think that both Beijing and Washington need a win politically. So I, I think they're going to move forward. All right. So how are you moving forward when it comes to the investment environment? What are you buying? What are you selling? What are you staying away from? What are you increasing your exposure to? Yeah, Carol, uh, what we think, this is going to be a tricky year. Uh, we think that it is very possible that we've gotten the vast majority, if not all, of the gains for 2019 already. Uh, it's been a moonshot since uh, 12.31.18. Uh, we're up uh, roughly 10% on the S&P 500. Uh, we've m- reached many uh, price targets from the sell side in terms of the year's gains. So we think we're in a trading range. We think that there will be, with global slowdown pending, with possibly a little bit of Fed action, Uh, moving forward with uh, the United States probably slowing down in terms of the GDP numbers this year. We do think that earnings growth will be modest, call it that five to six percent. And we do think that there will be a fairly large disparity between winners and losers. We like uh, the commercial banks here. We think they represent very good value from a dividend growth and valuation standpoint and a very good risk reward in terms of what you get for what you pay. So when you say the returns are already, you said it's been a moonshot. I love that kind of just thought. Um, And the returns are pretty much already done or they are done for 2019. So do we go lower from here? Do we stay here? Do we have a lot of volatility and just kind of end at the same level by December? I mean, if any of us, I know it's hard to predict if we we knew this and could look into our crystal ball. But having said that, how do you expect it to play out the rest of the uh, year in terms of the equity markets? Yeah, Carol, we do see a trading range. Uh, we see a little bit of bounce up and then, then you know, perhaps a little bit of ease. But we do think that the big blue arrow uh, will be slower growth as we move through 2019. Certainly not recessionary growth. We do not expect one this year. Difficult to see one next year as well. Remember, next year is an election year. So uh, I would tell you that we do see this being a stock picker's market. Again, some companies in a slower domestic growth and a slower global growth environment, perhaps doing a little bit better. Other companies fading a little bit. So, of course, from a dividend growth standpoint, what we want to do is focus on the cash flows, focus on the companies that are getting it done. And I think that's uh, indeed what, uh, what we try to do every day here at Ball and Gainer. So we, we think that at, on a net basis uh, between now and the end of the year, uh, the S&P 500 really doesn't move much. Uh, so again, we think some stocks will do a, a lot better, a lot, and a few stocks will do a lot worse. So I think it's, uh, of course, 
identifying the winners and losers uh, for success for 2019. Jim Russell is principal and portfolio manager at Ball and Gainer in Cincinnati. They oversee about $23.7 billion. Always good to catch up. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.